Welcome to Up Next in Commerce, the show that takes you to the front lines of what's happening in digital, retail, and beyond, with conversations from fast-growing startups to the Fortune 500 and everything in between. You'll get a glimpse into what's next. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, the co-founder and CEO of Mission.org, and I'll be your guide through all the trends, innovations, and hot topics in the world of commerce. Recently, the phrase supply chain issues has become a bit of a punchline, but very few people seem to know what's actually going on behind the scenes. Anthony LaGrasso joined the show to help answer all my supply chain questions and tell me how brands should be thinking about supply chain in the future. As a veteran in this world, he's worked at places like Unilever, Estee Lauder, and L'Oreal. To now serving as the VP of supply chain at Levin Bakery, Anthony has had an insider view into what's actually going on and what innovations are needed to get ahead. I'm excited to share today's episode of Up Next in Commerce. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning a business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Anthony, welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So as you know, I am very excited to talk all things supply chain today. But first, I mean, you've been in this world for a very long time before it was even cool. So I want to hear from you, you know, where have you been when you've been in the world of supply chain, what companies and what did your roles look like? Sure. Um, so when I came out of college, I had no idea what supply chain was. I was an economics major. I really thought I wanted to do um, kind of like forecasting for different ingredients in terms of commodity costs and things like that. Uh, I was like, oh, maybe I'll work on Wall Street. And I do not have personality for that. So I really was looking for different jobs that I found interesting. And I started my career at L'Oreal. And I worked in data management for the supply chain team. So I was there, I was kind of getting my feet wet in my career. And I was seeing everything that everyone was doing. I was asking questions, kind of getting involved. And they were asking me to do some reporting for them. So I was doing that. And one promotion led to another. And all of a sudden, I was importing all of the fragrances from France. And I was planning all the Ralph Lauren fragrances from New Jersey. So I was in the luxury product division. I did that for about three and a half years. Then I went to Estee Lauder and I did innovation planning for about a year and a half. And while I was there, I realized I really wanted to have a connection to what I was planning, what I was doing. And I was like, I need to get out of beauty. It's not really my thing. I was like, if I have to sit in another meeting, listen to what horse hair we're going to put on the makeup brush, I'm going to drive myself crazy. Come on, Anthony. What? That sounds like a dream job. Uh, It was great for my girlfriend at the time, now wife, uh, to get all the products. But um, yeah, I I just couldn't do it. I couldn't be one of those people that just planned a widget. 
So at that point, I realized I wanted to get into food. So I luckily connected with a recruiter and I got into Unilever and I was working there in kind of supply chain optimization. So I, was, I did that for about a year and a half. And then I started doing supply planning for all of the novelty ice cream. So Klondike, Good Humor, all of that. After that, I was promoted to operational excellence manager. I did that for about a year. Then I was promoted to do the tea supply planning manager. So I did all of Lipton tea, PG tips, all of that stuff. After about a year and a half of doing that, I was promoted again, and I did all of package ice cream. So Breyers, Talenti, um, Ben and Jerry's. So going to Vermont all the time, eating pints right off the line. It was really great. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure planning supply chain for ice cream is just like a super easy job. Nothing to worry about in transit there. <laughs> nothing you have to worry about from a cold chain perspective. Nothing you have to worry about from a, a quality perspective. A few things that a lot of people don't know about when Bluebell had their um, Listeria outbreak kind of put a, uh, a hamper on all of supply planning because um, the government regulated that you needed to put everything on hold for 48 hours to be tested before you could release it. And in supply chain in 2020, uh, everything's just in time. Small working capital, produce, ship, reproduce, you know, you can't have more than 10 days on hand. It was very fast paced, which is not the case anymore. Um, it's kind of the reason why all these places kind of got into a little bit of trouble um, in terms of inventory. It's very hard when you're sitting on Briar's Vanilla at five days on hand and you have to wait 48 hours for testing to see if it's released. And then if it doesn't get released, you start cutting cases. And if you start cutting cases to Walmart, another kind of inside baseball analogy or, or commentary is Walmart just reorders the same amount every day. So if you ship them 100 and they order 200, they're going to order 200 the next day. And they just keep doing it. So you're, they keep adding on and your cut cases just add up. So if you cut for a week, it could go from 200 that you're at, or 100 that you're cutting to 1,000 very quickly. Wow. And you have a very strict kind of service level that you need to uh, perform at, especially for an A item like that. So yeah, the cold chain is, is very interesting. I can get into that from our, our grocery perspective for Levin. But in doing that, I, was, I think I was doing that for over, over two years at that point. And I got a very unique job opportunity. Uh, I had a recruiter reach out to me and said, hey, I have this really unique opportunity at a, a small little kind of startup bakery that has 25 years of history. Uh, would you be interested in having a conversation? And I'm always interested in having a conversation. So I was like, sure. And it was Levan. So I was like, you know what? This is a really interesting opportunity. So what I was hired for was to launch our grocery business, which I, I think most people are aware of now. We're in every Whole Foods uh, nationwide. One of the reasons I was approached was I have the cold chain experience. So this product is cold chain. We sell it in the freezer aisle. So I, I, knew, I know from production to shuttle costs to our frozen warehouse space to getting it on shelf. I was like, okay, let's do this. In most cases, right, I've throughout my career, I've been told, okay, here's a million or billion dollar brand. Don't break it. This kind of gave me the opportunity of, hey, let's build something here. Let's do, do it from the ground up and see where it goes. And at that point, I was like, I don't really have much going on in my life. I was expecting my first child in a month. Um, and I was like, let's do it. No, it's not a lot. No big deal. Yeah. Uh, so I, I started uh, in August of 2000, um, 
2019. And uh, it's been kind of pedal to the metal since. And it's been really gratifying and satisfying and really challenging. So over the almost three years that I've been at Leven, I started just as director of supply chain doing grocery. And now I'm the VP of supply chain doing the entire omni-channel supply chain. So from retail to e-commerce and to grocery. So that's a little bit of my career. That's awesome. Okay, so you are the expert that I've been needing on this show. I'm glad you're here. So I want to take it back to the basics with supply chain of what are the major hubs that you think about when you order a product? And let's keep it within grocery because I think that's the more complex one. And you can even keep it within frozen if you want to. What are the hubs from, you know, fulfillment places to like inbound receiving, whatever it might be? I don't know, but I want everyone listening to know, like, what are all the points that a product has to go through before it even reaches the consumer or, you know, the freezer aisle in Whole Foods? Yeah, for sure. So um, it, it really depends. It starts either at your own production facility or a co-manufacturer. Most large companies use co-manufacturers, although now with COVID, things are kind of going back the other way. Um, so it starts with production there. And then you have logistics from your co-manufacturer to your distribution center. And then from your distribution center to a, let's say, a Whole Foods distribution hub. So it'll most likely be on at least two trucks, sometimes three, because sometimes they'll send you to, let's say, Whole Foods nationwide uses UNFI. So you go to a UNFI hub, and then from there, it'll go to Whole Foods. It'll go to each one of those uh, sections. Okay. What's UNFI stand for? I think it's United National uh, Foods uh, Incorporated. It's the largest okay. food uh, distributor in the U.S. I would say anything on a whole food shelf, probably 90% of that came through UNFI. Okay, got it. So got it. Uh, most large consumer companies go through a distributor and then goes directly to the grocery store. So it's going on at least two trucks. Both trucks need to be set at minus 30 degrees. You have a temp tail on the truck to make sure it doesn't fluctuate because you don't want to cause any issues. It was, it's mostly a bigger issue if you have ice cream because if it melts and then refreezes, that's when you get the frost yeah. on top. So at minimum, you're having two trucks before it even gets on the shelf at a grocery store. Okay, got it. So when you came in, how much was already done or was this really kind of starting from the ground up? Like you really had to build everything from nothing. scratch because they had not done this before. Okay, Absolutely nothing. nothing. It, okay. it was, hey, here's our idea. Can, go make it happen. And it was literally a piece of paper. And it was like, this is what we're thinking of doing. Find somewhere to make it. Um, find uh, logistics companies to move it. Find a, a warehouse to store it and build everything from the bottom up. It was literally nothing. Okay. So then you built a process and then pandemic comes. And then what? Like, did you have to rebuild your entire process or were you already starting to maybe prepare beforehand for something or set things up in a different way than maybe you had previously? Yeah. So coming from Unilever, uh, it's always plan for the worst. So we always did scenario planning. I remember some of my mentors there would say, okay, well, if this happens, what are you going to do? So we always thought about that. So I always had that in the back of my mind. Um, and the biggest issue that we had was we wanted to make sure that everyone was safe. So all of the labor wanted to make sure that they could actually go into the facility, produce it, and be safe. The one thing that actually happened was we weren't officially launched until I think it was July of 2020. So I think it was right in the middle of the pandemic when we actually launched on shelf. 
I remember the first production run. I was in our facility for over a month and I couldn't leave the hotel. So I would go from the hotel to the facility and back to the hotel um, because of COVID. And then when I came home, you still had to quarantine for 12 days. So I had a newborn at home with my wife. They would be at my in-laws for for 12 days before I can even like see them. So it was, it was really, I mean, for me, it was very stressful. I, I lost most of my hair of what I had at that point. But yeah, having, having to do all of that within a pandemic kind of makes you level set in what you need to do and how you need to do it. But to be honest with you, we didn't have to change too much. It was more about, okay, what's the safety of the people that are there? And then, okay, if the safety is good, let's move forward with it. Now, one thing that did change was the demand for everything just skyrocketed because people were hoarding things and, and, and ordering different things. So some of our launch timing got pushed because a lot of uh, retailers weren't resetting their shelves on their normal schedule. And then on other ones that came back and they're like, hey, we're going to order this much. And then they came back, no, we're going to order this much and this much. I remember at launch, so rule of thumb in the CPG supply chain world for a launch of a new product, usually try to plan to like 60 to 90 days worth of your forecast, right? Just in case for fluctuations. We sold through my 90 days worth of forecast in a week and a half. And we had to scramble to produce more because the demand was absolutely crazy for it. But you're producing here in the U.S., which maybe I guess is why it was easier for you all where everyone else, I mean, if you were still at maybe Unilever, they would have different kind of struggles, right? Because they're ordering a lot of things from overseas. Unilever uh, for the U.S., most of the stuff is produced here. There's a few items that they bring from overseas, but most of it's produced in the U.S. And one of the things when I started out, even before the pandemic, I wanted to make sure that we had domestic production for all of our ingredients and all of our packaging, just in case, because I've run into so many issues bringing things overseas prior to pandemic. So that was one thing that I made sure. I was like, I'd rather pay a little bit more now to avoid any headaches that we might have in the future. And that was one thing that really paid off. Smart. So how are you thinking about it today? Or if you were maybe advising other companies, I mean, you know, many of the commerce companies and brands that I talk to are, of course, sourcing things from overseas. And I've heard definitely a theme that people are now starting to bring, you know, manufacturing and um, yeah, into the U.S. because of exactly what has happened. What kind of advice would you give to people who are maybe just starting out and have just seen what has happened over the past couple of years? Like, how should they be thinking about their supply chain going forward? Yeah. The one thing that we do and what my team does constantly, we, we have resiliency plans for everything. So we have a backup to the backup to the backup, which works really well for certain items and other items, it doesn't work well. For Levin Bakery, we use the best of the best ingredients. So it's not like we can swap out something and say, oh, I can buy this because it's the same. So just like, hey, I'm going to buy this sugar because it's sugar, right? Mm-hmm. And, and in our case, no, not every sugar is made the same, right? Not every sugar is, meets our standards. So we need to be very careful as to what we have as backups for some of those items. For ingredients, we try to use multiple suppliers or distributors. And we try to have a stock model, right? So we have, we have distributors that have grown with the company. When Pam and Connie started the company 26 years ago, they had distributors that were as small as they were, right? The one thing that we really take pride in, we have a distributor that's been with us since day one, and they've grown with Levin Bakery, right? So we work hand in hand with them to say, hey, this is our forecast. Let's keep a little bit of inventory. And then when we find out that there could be a shortage, then we go to them and say, hey, let's bring in as much as we can and we'll hold it there. 
Now we, we do that all within reason, right? Um, and we make sure that no one's going to have too much of a cash outlay and cause any issues. But when you have those relationships with your distributors and your suppliers, it works really well. And, and knock on wood, we, we haven't had any major stock outs of anything that we couldn't really um, swap. So we've done a really good job with packaging, uh, a good job on ingredients and keeping our standards as high as they need to be. Um, and really just having those plans in place. But back to your original question, resiliency plan, resiliency plan, resiliency plan. Go out, bid out everything that you have, have a backup to the backup to the backup. Even if you have to spread your demand over a course of a few suppliers where your blended cost might be the same as what you would buy from somebody else or slightly higher, it's going to help you in the long run. So when you think about these plans, do you have actual scenarios, you know, like, oh, another you know, economic crash happens or, the, or is it really just saying, okay, let's just do a scenario where inventory, you know, or like demand doubles. Here's one where it triples. Is it more vague or is it actually like planning for certain events? It depends, to be honest. We started off very vague. And then as things started to happen, we got a little bit more granular. There was a lot of issues at the beginning of the year with droughts and crops for raisins. So raisins go into our scones and into our oatmeal raisin cookies. So I was like, Maybe we should go out and buy a raisin crop. So we, we went out and we bought a raisin crop for the year. And it's really helped us because uh -huh. where other prices have. Oh, that's so smart. <laughs> so we've and, and leveraging our scale and what we've been able to do in our omni channel has really been key for us. So thinking ahead, everything being so interconnected kind of drives you a little bit nutty. And it keeps me up at night. Just like what's going on in Europe right now and what's going to do to grain prices, not only this year, but over the course of the next year and a half what it's going to do for um, corn prices, wheat prices, everything. The one thing that I found out a few months ago is corn is the number one ingredient in corrugated glue, which I had no idea about. Not surprised. I feel like it's an ingredient in like everything. It's in everything. <laughs> the increased nitrogen costs, which is increasing the fertilizer costs, which is increasing the corn costs, which is increasing your meat costs. Everything is so interconnected. And trying to get ahead of some of that, that stuff is really key. And making sure that you're, you're ordering the correct amount, that you're not going to have any excess, but also being able to build for growth, right? And being in a hyper-growth company, right, where we're, we're constantly going into new markets and, and opening up new channels, you need to be very careful in making sure you're making the right decisions. Okay, now I'm wondering, like, how do you stay ahead of, you know, things within the market, like you're talking about corn or droughts or things like that. I mean, it's, it's reminding me of, I used to work or at a previous company, we had acquired the satellite company and it would fly over top of places and see like, okay, based off the shadows on these oil bins, there's like only 10% <laughs> of oil in here. And like, based off this field, like 80% of that crop's dead. And so can't rely on that. And it was very much for like hedge funds, finance, selling that data. But it made me, it always makes me think like, well, how can, you know, someone like live in bakery be ahead of those things before the market already is like, you know, way past the point where you can capitalize on anything and buy your own raisin. Yeah. <laughs> tree, tree, plant, crop, <laughs> whatever you buy. Crop. Okay. I, to be honest, you're never going to be ahead of everything. So there's certain things where you need to take advantage of it. One positive is our menu is not the largest. So there's cer certain key attributes that go into our, our items. Mm -hmm. So if we say, hey, if we can cover flour, sugar, and our chocolate chips, hey, 80-20 rule, we're good, right? Everything else that can potentially go up, it's not a problem. But 
over the years, right, we have some, like I said, some suppliers that do buy some of that data, right? And they'll send it to me and they're like, hey, this is where it's trending. This is where it's going. What do you, what do you think? Um, but just having, having those open lines of communication and constantly updating your forecast to your suppliers so they can think ahead also, that way it's not just you guys. It's really, that's what's really helped us. Hey there, are you enjoying the show so far? Well, imagine your company's advertising placed right in this very spot during a future interview with another elite e-commerce mind. Imagine your messaging and logo directly connected to the industry's most prominent innovators and thought leaders, distributed across every major podcast platform and social network. Yeah, well, it's time to stop imagining. Learn how you can partner with Up Next in Commerce and sponsor this very show. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and let's have a conversation. So are you able to innovate in the supply chain or how does one think about innovating the supply chain? Like, are there certain tests that you're making or different things that people might be like, ah, Anthony, that's actually a little bit too far out there. We don't want to get involved with that. I mean, the, the one positive is the culture at Levan is, hey, let's figure out how we can do something great that we can bring to our customers. So I always think about it that way. And I'm like, okay, how can I make our experience even better? But how can I make us as efficient as possible, right? Especially in the crunch with inflation, you need to be as efficient as possible with, with labor that sometimes doesn't come to the office or with just the amount of manual touches that you have with something. We try to innovate as much as possible. We try to get as much machinery as possible um, to help our teams, not to eliminate labor, but to help them do their jobs more efficiently. So we're in the process of doing that now. A lot of our stuff is still very high touch, right? When you get our e-commerce ba- uh, cookies, they're, they're physically placed in the bag with a beautiful ribbon that is tied in a nice little bow for our unboxing moments. We still want to deliver that, right? We still want you to feel like you're walking into Pam and Connie's bakery on 74th Street 25 years ago to deliver that to the customer, even if they're ordering it in um, California, right? So... I want to innovate as best as I can, but not just to become this ultra high efficient model where we get a lot of, where a lot of the fun comes in innovation is actually innovating with new products, right? So working with Pam and Connie, who still do all of our innovations on- Oh, wow, they do? Yeah, they still do. Okay, tell me the behind the scenes on this. What does this look like? I spent actually six hours with them yesterday going over some new and exciting things that are coming uh, down the pipe. But working, in the past, they would kind of innovate with an idea, right? And say, okay, well, I have this, this, and this. Let's try it together. And when I first started, it kind of ran- kind of ran into some some issues with it. It was like, hey, here's this uh, exotic chocolate that we love that you can only buy in these small little bars and it needs to be cut up. So I kind of learned from that. And now I, I, I provide them with options as to what they can put into, let's say, our cookies or into our scones, right? So when we launched in Boston, we try to do an exclusive something at our bakeries. So um, Massachusetts is known for the cranberries. So we decided to say, all right, let's do a cranberry scone. We went out and we're like, okay, how can we find a cranberry that will deliver the flavor for us? And one of the things that we try to do is we try to support local and small businesses. So we actually went to this very tiny local family run cranberry farm and they're supplying us with our cranberries. What we do now, especially for innovations is I'll provide them and they're like, hey, I'm looking for this flavor profile and can you help me get it? Or can you find out if they have any uh, items that are non-GMO this? 
or can you do this? Yeah, I'll send it to them. It works a lot better and more efficiently that way instead of us kind of being like, okay, well, here's what they want and I need to find something that matches it because I can't actually find that chocolate or find that special ingredient. What's the craziest ingredient they've ever asked for that you were like, impossible? I don't think it's been that. It was more of like, we really like this flavor profile, but it only comes in like a 50 pound block. Got it. Okay. We have to shave the chocolate to put into the cookie. Like, is it going to be an existing item or like an ongoing evergreen item? Or is it just going to be like a one-off? They're fantastic to work with. They come up with some really amazing things that I would have never thought of. I was eating something yesterday and I was just like, how do you guys think of this? Because it really just works so well. So working and having that rapport with them and, and we text back and forth and I'm like, hey, I'm sending you this. Let me know how it tastes. That's where I get a lot of the fun in terms of innovating. Um, and that's more of like product innovating. But from back to a, like a supply chain innovation standpoint, right now we're trying to just get more efficient with the things that will help the team getting larger ovens, things like that, making sure we have very efficient mixers, things along those lines. Nothing too overly automated. Okay. How do you go about sourcing new ingredients or products when, you know, they have their ideas of what they're looking for and you're going out and like, okay, let me go and find this for you, especially if they're not already with someone that you work with. How do you even begin to try and find the thing that they maybe want to include? I mean, the one thing that I learned when I started, Google is an amazing thing. (laughs) Type it in. You can find a supplier anywhere. Okay. But what we've been trying to do is we're trying to partner with some suppliers that can help us with the innovation. So sometimes we'll give them a flavor profile or something that they need to match and they'll have it for us. Being able to to use those suppliers to kind of ideate with has been really key. So when thinking about suppliers, we've had a lot of people on the show say, okay, you really have to make sure you pick good ones. And, you know, here's some, a checklist of what you can do to make sure you do. What's your checklist when you're trying to find suppliers to work with and making sure that, you know, they're going to be there for the long haul and they're going to be a good partner. Yeah. I I think it it goes back to the the one supplier that we have that we've been kind of growing with for the last 26 years, making sure that we have a connection with them, that their, their values match ours. That's always number one. Um, It's not, I was actually interviewing um, my procurement manager and she had a fantastic question for me. She's like, how do you balance working with a supplier that provides you great service, you have a great rapport with them, they have your values versus cost savings. It's like, wow, that's one of the best questions I've ever received in an interview. Um, And I told them, I go, we always value values as number one, right? How do we connect with them? What are they doing from a sustainability standpoint? What are they doing from a labor standpoint? What a lot of people don't know is the, the chocolate market, right? They still have some child labor in some areas of the of the world. So making sure that the supplier we're working with doesn't utilize child labor, um, making sure that we, that we go through and review all of their practices, making sure that they have a path for non-GMO, making sure that they have a, a robust pipeline. Those are really the keys. And then we'll work out costs later. And as we grow and we scale, we'll, inherently we'll get some better costs, but making sure that we have that connection and we can grow responsibly is key. Got it. Okay, so zooming out a bit now, the one thing I keep wondering is like, why are there still issues in the supply chain? I'm wondering if you can answer this outside of Levin Bakery perspective. But to me, I'm like, this should have been done by now, people. We should have been solving this, you know, a while ago. So what is going on today? And is it any different than what was going on, you know, one year, two years ago? Yeah, I I, I think it's uh, number one's labor. There's still a lot of people that either 
don't want to work or don't feel safe working or going back to a job that maybe they didn't really enjoy to begin with and they're looking for something else. That's number one. Um, right now, there's a lot of places that have capacity to produce and do different things, but they don't have the people to do it. And then in some cases, if they have the people and they have the capacity, they don't have truckers to pick it up. Or there's backlogs and let's say they have the capacity, they have the workers, they have the truckers, and it's going to like, it's going on a railroad. It goes to the railroad depot and there's no labor to unload it off the railroad depot. It's a big circle. I think that's okay. number one. Uh, it all kind of goes back to labor. The second one is sometimes it's, it's really difficult to dig out of a hole, right? So like I said, when you're kind of like just in time model, which a lot of supply chains have become because they really became kind of cost savers for companies, right? It's like if we can maximize and, and make our supply chain super efficient, we can save a ton of money and reinvest it in our company. When you have that, it's really hard to pivot and adjust and be like, okay, well, I'm going to double everything that I used to do. That takes time. From an importing perspective, there's just still issues with the overall supply chain in terms of labor and boats and containers. I live in New York and I, I have family in Jersey. I grew up in Jersey and driving back and forth. I've never seen so many containers in New York and New Jersey just sitting there because we're not exporting anything and they can't get it out to go back overseas. It's another issue that they have. And then the ports are just congested. So it's, it's going to take a while. To be honest with you, I think the downturn, there is a downturn now in demand, especially from a, like a grocery perspective. People are reallocating their money towards vacations or camps for their kids or things like that. Um, less and less people are buying random goods. I think over the next probably six months, you'll see some of that alleviate. But a lot of CPG companies are saying that their path of getting back margin or getting to the same margins that they used to have went from 2022 to mid-2023, just because it's just going to take even longer. Plus, I think there are some aspects of the business world that has been able to increase their prices, and they're just going to keep them there until they're forced to bring them down. The trucking industry is really interesting to me. I remember when I was at Unilever. We used to ship from, let's say, like the East Coast, Pennsylvania to California. A full truck frozen used to be around $1,500. Now, a full truck frozen is around $3,000 to $4,000. Wow. What do you think all those increases are due to? Like Labor. Of course, always blame inflation, but then labor. <laughs> it's all labor. It's all, yeah. uh, I mean, the vaccines need to be shipped, referred, even though they're, they're going on some other ones. It's just all of that the reefer trucks aren't as efficient, right? So more diesel costs, gas prices going up are inherently hitting that too. So it's, it's, it's a wicked game right now. And it's very difficult to kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's going to come. It's just going to take a while. And that's kind of been our biggest issue this year, right? It's like, well, what can we do? How can we adjust? How can we get creative? And, and that's been kind of fun and frustrating all at the same time. What can we do to, to maximize our trucks? What can we do to maximize our production? What can we do to maximize our ingredient usages? Can we partner with another company that's ships frozen and share trucks, right? If we're going to the same distributors, what can we do? And we've had some luck in some areas and we've had um, not some, so much luck in other areas. 
But some of the other areas where um, it's just impacting us is I'm paying, I don't know, double for these trucks. And um, it's a competition to get on the trucks, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> so you need to wow. make sure that you're, you're, you're making, you need to make sure that you have your inventory at the right place at the right time. It sounds like to me then from everything you just said, there's a huge opportunity for investments in technology to do a lot of the things that we're having labor shortages over. I mean, it doesn't, to me, this is a conversation we've been having for like a really long time, people not being able to find people to do certain jobs. And my thought is like, well, then we should, you know, have technologies to be able to do that. And I know Chipotle, they were saying that, you know, they're doing just that, where a lot of the people that were working at Chipotle's, they didn't even want to be doing certain things and they don't need to anymore because they can have robots doing them. But do you think that could solve a lot of these problems if we just start thinking of ways to kind of get the humans out of the work that they probably don't want to be doing anyways? I, I think certain aspects, yes. I, I just, I think in some cases, technology is a slippery slope. I want to make sure that people that want to work and can work do have a job doing something. Mm-hmm. But there's certain things that I just find very difficult to automate, right? Like, how do we tie a bow on a bag? Is there a machine you can't that can do that? that? Oh, I would think there would be. I don't know. <laughs> Somebody that listens to this podcast can send me an email. Let me know. Uh, we've been looking. It's been a, a, a hard road, but that sounds like a hard job on your fingers. I'm like, I don't know about that one. Whoever's doing that. Wow. Shout out to you. <laughs> <laughs> the simple answer is yes. We need to have more automation. I remember when um, McDonald's launched their new quarter pounder, the fresh beef and the machine basically, I think can cook something like 30 quarter pounders in whatever, five minutes. And it just takes one person to put the, the burgers in. You wow. close the top and it cooks all of them. And it's like, they're perfect. Yeah. It sears it on the top and the bottom. And then they just take it no off. No one's that sad about losing that job. Let's be honest. They're like, I was getting burned by that oil anyways. And it was not fun. Exactly. <laughs> um, but thinking ahead and doing that, definitely. It's hard for smaller companies to be able to do that, right? So like yeah. g- getting a robot that can pick up, let's say something and put it in a box just doing something as simple as that's like $300,000, right? Doesn't yeah. take into account when it breaks down and you need to have somebody come in and fix it too. But yeah, overall, the entire labor market, I think we need to have a, a kind of a review to see what are the jobs that we can kind of automate and move to and what can we kind of get away from, right? I'm of the position, how can I make the people that are on my floor more efficient and happier, right? I don't want to get rid of them, I just want to make them more efficient and happier. Um, yeah. So if I can take away those redundant things that cause carpal tunnel or just drive them crazy, I want to do it. It's just getting to that point is very difficult and it takes a, a long time and a lot of money in certain yeah. aspects. I agree. Okay, so I want you to plot your crystal ball now and tell me over the next you know, one to three years, what do you expect the supply chain to look like? What are you betting on or what are you maybe hoping for? That's a great question. I think, to be honest, it goes back to the last question. It's going to be more more automation. There's going to be, I think there's going to be a really big push for these robot drivers and the truck drivers that are self-sufficient. Um, I think there's going to be a, a big push on infrastructure um, to get roads more efficient um, for the drivers. And I think there's going to be a, kind of a big push around getting away from co-manufacturing and bringing things back in-house. I think you're going to see that a lot. Um, in some cases, the the cost savings isn't that much, but you still have a better control over your quality and you have your own people doing things. I think that's going to go a long way and you can pivot easier. When you have it in-house, you can pivot and adjust. You can change your line over from running something that nobody wants anymore to something else. 
instead of trying to get out of a contract and doing things like that. I think that that's going to be what's going to happen in the next three years. Um, beyond that, again, it's going to be more robots. It's going to be more, I think there's going to be, everyone keeps saying it and I've, I, I have a hard time kind of seeing the path within the next five years, but maybe the next 10, you're going to see a lot more data driven things, right? Where you're getting data like real time. So from a grocery store, right? You now have to wait for spins data to come in once a month and it's lagging and all of this. I think eventually you're going to see, well, we're having major scans of our product in this area and it happened yesterday. You're going to see it the next day and you're going oh, to yeah, be able to sure. adjust. I think that's going to happen within the next 10 years and you're going to be running your production off of that. And you're going to see, okay, well, I'm actually selling and shipping this much and that's how much I'm actually going to be producing. I think you're going to see kind of some MLQs come down with more efficient machinery and things like that. I think that's where kind of the future lies. Awesome. I love that. I love that you're like, you know what, Stephanie? I'm not going to worry about your one year. I'm going straight to 10 years out. Because well, I figured that was the next follow-up question, right so there, I apologize. <laughs> no, I love that. That's great. Most of my guests are like, oh, I don't even know about the next one year. But I Things I like... change so often. I mean, what I say yeah. could be discontinued by tomorrow. Who knows? That's okay. I love the bets. That's awesome. All right, let's shift over to the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I ask you a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready, Anthony? I hope so. <laughs> All right, first one. Favorite cookie? Chocolate chip walnut. The OG. It's the best. Yum, yum. Okay, what is your favorite either supply chain tip or a secret or a hack that you want someone else in the world to know about? Oh, wow. It's a great question. I think it's more of a business in general. Just have a great mentor, someone you can bounce ideas off of. It'll go a long way. I, I learned so much when I was at Unilever and I've been able to take it everywhere. Making sure that you, you're, you're taking your lumps and learning along the way. When you fail, you're going to learn so many more things than when you succeed. Love that. What's the most underrated technology? Oh, wow. Excel. You can do so much in Excel. Most people hate planning in Excel, but I think it goes a long way. No, I agree. I was only in Excel for many, many years and I switched to Google and they literally didn't have it. They were like, why would we have Excel? And so I had to figure all the things out in yep. sheets. And I was like, ah, still not as good, but I'll, I'm gonna try my best. Agreed. What reading materials or podcasts or newsletters do you read each day to stay up on supply chain stuff? I listen to way too many podcasts. Um, so I listen to some Gartner podcasts. I listen to... Um, some CPG podcasts in regards to supply chain. Um, and then I read a ton of Apple news um, and I kind of curated it for supply chain and, and crop information and things like that. So I try to read, I don't get much sleep with a five month year old. So um, oh, I get it. I'm yep. usually up reading in the middle of the night or answering emails or thinking of different things and bothering people. But yeah, I, I try to ingest as much as possible. Most of which are podcasts. Love it. Well, Anthony, thanks so much for coming on the show today and sharing your knowledge in the supply chain world. I really appreciate it. Where can people learn more about you and the work you're up to at Love and Bakery? For me, I mean, you can look me up on, on LinkedIn or um, best thing to do is go to levinbakery.com and order some cookies and ship yes. them to your loved ones. They're the best. And I'm not even joking because I work here or speaking out of turn. They are the best cookies I've ever had in my entire life. And shout out to the best PR person I've ever worked with in my life, <laughs> Pam Louie. She's the Go absolute, absolute best. I need to say that, Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. We're keeping it now, Pam. Can't take that out. That's, that's gold right there. 
Thank you very much, Anthony. Thank This was great. I really appreciate it. listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.